All right, welcome to APIs You Won't Hate. Uh, today we're recording on August 11th. Um, I'm joined by Phil, who is shockingly back in England, I believe. Yeah, back in Pucklechurch. I'm back here where? to do uh, back in Pucklechurch, the uh, the hilariously named town my parents live in. Um, I'm here to meet with the Woodland Trust about some reforestation. We've got 3,000 trees going in in winter, so pretty excited oh, to be back in the UK for that. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. I, I saw that on Twitter and it, it seems like it was kind of interesting trying to find buyers or sellers who don't, who will sell you the land knowing that you're not going to actually develop it. Yeah. Well, luckily I'm doing two different things at the same time. I'm working with some farmers who like just want to make a bit of extra money and have like, gaps between their fields or fields they're not really using that much. Um, and, and you can just plant a bunch of trees on it. And my friends over at Ecology are happy to give, give some money to the people that are planting those trees. Um, so working with existing landowners to plant on their land is a great money saver because it costs me nothing whatsoever. I turn up with a shovel, plant some trees, you've got some money, everything's great. Um, and then, so I'm also trying to buy my own land, but, um, it's pretty bonkers. Like most banks will only loan you money if you're planning on building a house on it, which is pretty messed up. Um, and a lot of other people, I mean, there are some kind of conservation, um, lenders around and they want to see three years worth of, of business activity before they'll lend you any money. And I'm like, okay, how does anyone start doing this then? You just have to magically pull like nearly a million pounds out of your backside and then you can, and then you can save the world. I'm like, great. Who's got a million pounds? Do you want to lend me a million pounds, Matt? Like, what the hell? <laughs> I, I have some pounds, but not in the currency sense that I'm willing to donate. Um, <laughs> And also we're joined by, uh, it's Harsha, is that correct? I should have checked. Yeah, it's Harsha. Cool, yep. excellent. You got You're uh, our great friend of the pod, Ben Edmonds, introduced us to you and you do internal API platform work at Wafer, is that correct? That is true, yep. Awesome, cool. So um, you kind of brought you on here today because Wayfair does a lot of really cool things and you all are doing uh, APIs through uh, four different languages, if I'm correct, PHP, Python, Java, and C-sharp, correct? Yes. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, how, like, which one started first and how, like, how have you kind of integrated all four of those languages together? Uh, great, great question. So, this all started, like, I would say very recently. Uh, Wayfair was a giant monolith. We were a PHP house or PHP stack uh, through and through. So, all of our backend was built in PHP for our Wayfair.com storefront. And the front end was JavaScript, you know, React, SAS, um, and GraphQL. Uh, so like during uh, last year, we kind of uh, found that the monolith was uh, growing so big that it was hard to manage. And we started investigating into a microservice or service-oriented architecture, service-based architectures. And that's where, uh, Wayfair has already has like a lot of engineers, a lot of teams. People were already internally using .NET Core. People were already using Python in terms of like uh, with the Flask and Fast API. People are already using uh, Java frameworks like Drop Wizard, Spring Boot. Um, so uh, what what we found internally after audits and investigations was, hey, let's let's uh, standardize our approaches across these four languages because that's what people are using. Um, Again, uh, people are free to choose uh, the languages where we've, uh, we've kind of decided uh, for front end, you can use React, GraphQL, um, you can use gRPC, you can use anything you want, uh, as long as it's standardized across Wayfair and you're not trailblazing uh, 
on your own path. Uh, good, good luck if you do. Like th that is a valid valid path. Uh, but we have like paved paths for every one of these frameworks. That, that's how we got into it. Um, and it, again, it is it is very recent, and it is we are learning so much along the way. Um, so yeah, happy to happy to talk more on that. So, so just, how, go ahead, how does that how does that work? I'm 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 not quite. Um... Not quite following. Uh, so people can use whatever they want, but there's four that are four like languages that are preferred. Um, or, yeah. or are you allowed to use any frameworks you want within the languages? Or what? How do you d separate kind of uh, the freedom to do whatever you want with kind of the standardiz standardization that you were talking about? Um, so it's very use case driven, right? So certain applications uh, that that are like that need really high performance. For example, we have warehouses, right? You have warehouse management. You have a lot of things. They're like uh, front uh, devices on the front line that are not that powerful, right? You can't uh, ask them to be built with Java framework because the devices cannot handle that. So use something lighter like Python. You can use something like Go, which which kind of is lighter, um, uh, which is supported there. So we we ask folks like, be he, here's already the paved paths. So it, uh, I'll take an analogy here where imagine you're on a you're on a bike trail on a cliff path, right? you see two paths one of the paths is already paved you know yeah. you know like somebody has gone through it uh, put forth a, like a map for it but you also always you see a path to a side which uh you could be the first one on it but it's it it'll lead you to that destination but you, you you're on your own right yeah, yeah. so that, that is how that is how we we give folks the freedom again we want we trust our engineers our engineers are assets and um <laughs> we, we trust them a lot and they they Again, coming up with all these frameworks and support structures, um, a lot of work has been done by trailblazers. Um, example, like Fast API in Python, that was a framework that we never explored. Like Flask was uh, pretty much the, the framework that we use for Python apps. But someone found like, hey, there's a use case for Fast API where it integrates Swagger Docs, it integrates uh, like Open API stuff, uh, like schemas. It integrates better error handling better asynchronous support and GraphQL. So it has all of these supports. So let's, let's just trial, trailblaze that. Um, and that, that's how we get in it. So that, that's the freedom I'm talking about. Um, so we, again, if, if somebody fails on that trailblaze path, right? Uh, we, are, we are all up for like, hey, like, it's okay, we tried, like it fails, things, things fail. Uh, but if, if it does succeed, like let's, let's make sure we build the support infrastructure around it that drives and makes that an option for people to use for whatever use case that they have. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. If you awesome. could explain everything in terms of like bikes in the future, that, that's just <laughs> always going to work for me. So thank you for that. I, I like analogies a lot. So uh, I'll, I'll be like sharing a few more analogies. Uh, that's great. I like bikes of... a lot. Problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when it comes to like developing a new API, does like let's say like a complete greenfield API um, mm -hmm. for um, let's let's say like for a, a new cart system, which since it's way fair, you have carts. Um, does all the wait like do, does every developer from every language come together and decide which language is best? And do you want to like go with like Open API versus GraphQL, or do you kind of hand it off to one team and say, see how far you get, and then we'll take we'll when we get to a certain point we'll figure out if it's working or something. Is is that kind of how it works there for API design? Um, so, not not exactly. So we have uh, so I, I just listened to one of your previous podcasts that Mark was on about GraphQL. 
And he has this famous diagram of this concept, uh, like a Venn diagram with two intersecting circles where there's API experts on one side and there's domain experts on the other side, right? And there's an intersection which he calls unicorns, I believe. Um, and those are the rare people uh, that you need to find. So again, Wayfair is very similar. We have uh, people who are experts in designing a GraphQL schema or experts in designing a RESTful uh, schema um, or you know gRPC like Protobuf. Um, but there's domain experts too who might not be API experts. So what we do is if a team wants to build uh, an API, want to, wants to interface their code by, with an API, we sit down with them, uh, API experts, domain experts, they sit in a room, they throw it on a whiteboard or some sort of tool uh, that they want to use. Like it, it could be UML, it could be uh, some one of the things, tools, uh, open source tools like Swagger. You just like hash it out, sit down, talk about these things. Um, and they eventually come up with uh, an API design that uh, both teams learn, which is like flexible enough. And the data shape is something that both uh, teams agree on, experts and domain experts agree on. Um, and eventually the, the goal here is the d domain experts eventually become the API experts. Uh, that, that is the eventual goal. Um, but that's how, that's how we go about it. There's, there's no like, um, we, don't, we, disc we don't like having too many meetings because we don't want the API design phase to be dragged out too much. We like to keep it short and sweet. Um, and we encourage folks to do a code first approach. I know that's <laughs> contentious term, but um, we'll discuss more on like how we enable teams to do that code first approach. But uh, we want folks to like feel that they're empowered and they can get to their start building their stuff soon as, as well as like maintaining all the API design standards and development standards that Wayfair has set up uh, in a flexible way. Interesting. And so with so many different people making different types of APIs in different languages, um, have you found any difficulties with um, trying to use common tooling for things like with, you know, if someone's using entirely open API, they can use Spectral to create a style guide. But if they have like a bunch of different uh, APIs, then you have a bunch of different ways to handle that automation. You have to use different tools for each of those things. So um, have you run into any trouble with that sort of stuff or are there just different, if you're doing API testing, you can use this in this language. If you use this thing, how do you focus on, on tools to recommend people? Yep. Uh, yeah, we, we've actually struggled with that for a bit. And I think we've found like a good solution. So at, again, uh, going back to the four languages and frameworks that we support, what, what we've built is the support infrastructure. So let's say I, as a developer, I want to build an API really, really fast. And I've gone through the design process. I've gone, gone through all of that stuff. And I have like a basic data shape. I know like the verbiage to use the versioning and, um, so what we do is we use something like, uh, it's called cookie cutter. So it's a GitHub project. It, uh, it, it is sort of a template that you could, it's a CLI uh, tool that has templates. So you can say like cookie cutter, set up my Python project and give it a GitHub URL. It'll automatically set that project up for you. So what we've done there is we've added additional logic on top uh, that adds automatically adds the Swagger UI, adds the OpenAPI annotations uh, to your code. It uh, auto-generates uh, some basic endpoints that you want to use, you prefill. So when you're trying to generate that, we ask you a bunch of questions up for, hey, do you want to add OpenAPI to this? You say, why? Yes. Um, 
do you want to add GraphQL to this application? We say, yes, sure, we'll add GraphQL. So what that avoids doing is uh, previously our developers used to take, I believe it was 36 steps or something to take an application, a basic application from the thought to getting it uh, to like, you know, production or dev environment, right? And we have reduced that to like, I think a bunch of questions that say like, do you want to do this? Uh, because if you, if you, if you can uh, imagine like setting up, for example, a GraphQL um, schema for your application would mean find a GraphQL library for it, write the boilerplate for like generating a schema, write the boilerplate for parsing a query, parsing the variables, and it's like all that boilerplate. You don't, uh, with, with cookie cutter, you just don't need to do that. You can say like, hey, generate this, answer a bunch of questions, and then boom, you have a project generated where you have graphical, which is if you choose graphical, you have graphical already preloaded for you. You can just use that. If you're using a RESTful service, you already have Swagger UI with uh, like a slash documentation endpoint that generates it for you. And, and we have like things like service catalog and something that are running in the background collecting service metadata. Uh, that's uh, aside this, but um, that, that's how we enable folks to like move much faster and we've struggled with it. For example, Java, especially Spring Boot, it's not very friendly with open API annotations. You just have like gigantic annotations for <laughs> error schemas and models and uh, to get it like generated. Um, the other way was to like generate like a J open API JSON file and use that. But we wanted to keep it consistent. So auto generating all of these uh, or generating these all of these all of these patterns and annotations with cookie cutter seemed a much faster way that we got around it. Yeah, that's pretty smart. I mean, in previous uh, jobs, like the last three previous jobs that all had a bunch of services, anything from 10 to, you know, 100, um, people spent a lot of time just copying and pasting. You know, if you're going to build a Ruby, if you're going to build a Rails API, you just go and like find another Rails API that you like in the company and copy and paste it and rename <laughs> a bunch of stuff. And um, that kind of is similar in the sense that you're getting this pre-existing structure. Uh, but it, it also means that you're like, copying bad decisions from another one and like putting it in another one. So now you have two APIs with bad decisions and then someone tweaks that a little bit and then wanders off and you kind of get these diverging bad ideas in different APIs. So I feel like having one template that you can improve over time means that at least each one's going to start off a little bit better than the last, hopefully. Um, right. Uh, hmm. That is, that is, you've just like resonated with what we're actually we're doing here. Um, I haven't actually talked about there. There's the cookie cutter also adds uh, your CI CD stuff into there. So we can get like an application into production or your dev environment within like five minutes because we generated that Helm chart for you. And that Helm chart will automatically, when you click deploy, uh, when you're ready for it, it'll automatically take you into uh, dev or production within a few minutes. Um, and with CD, it's even better because it's continuous deployment. The moment you push a PR, you have, you know, a Docker image built and that can get pushed up to like your uh, Kubernetes environment, like really, really, really fast. Um, but yeah, let's, let's stick to the topic about API. So uh, that is, that is a whole other kettlefish because man, Kubernetes service mesh, uh, there's so much that we've, we've done there. Uh, but, but uh, let's stick to APIs. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like kind of, um, is there a breakdown to like, GraphQL versus OpenAPI at Wayfair? Is, is it like a 50-50 split or does one kind of, does 
does the team lead kind of towards one or the other? Um, so Wayfair, during our monolith days, we are still like kind of transitioning away from monolith. I think we are at 500 million GraphQL queries a day. Again, a lot of these queries are repeated. So um, some of those are cached, some of those are repeated. So we are like very heavy on GraphQL usage. I don't have a percentage of REST versus RESTful gRPC GraphQL statistics there, but, uh, but I, I, it's all use case driven. So we, uh, the recommendation like that we, we give to folks uh, is if you have like a nice use case driven client side uh, like UI that you want to like uh, provide data for, uh, GraphQL is a perfectly valid solution and it will suit you because your use cases are so well defined. Um, GraphQL does not work well with random dynamic use cases, right? If you don't know what data you're querying, it's very hard to use uh, GraphQL to build that UI or provide your customers with uh, data for. So uh, it, it is heavily use case driven. So if you want to build a React form, GraphQL works well. If you want to just, just that's your use case, you can, you can use GraphQL, you can do mutations, you can do queries uh, and call it, call it a day. And every, all of our support structure will help you because we have, we use, we support Apollo. We also support like uh, native GraphQL using our server side rendering. So we have all of that support built in for you, but it's, it is up to the teams uh, to decide that. We, we only give them options. Hey, here are all the paved paths. Um, so if you want to use GraphQL, you, can, you feel free to do it. But if, if, if they feel like after discussing with any API experts or technology experts at Wayfair that this might not fit their use case, that GraphQL is not ideal, we, we detect that pretty early on. We've gotten it down to like uh, a few hours, like sitting with them, you can figure out that this might not work with GraphQL or this might work with maybe gRPC is a better solution, maybe, uh, or Kafka, like Kafka is a better solution. Maybe, you know, uh, RESTful services are a better solution. And that, that's how it starts. Um, it's all about like unraveling the use cases and the more you like understand the use cases, the, the more it, it like it defines or it uh, kind of decides what framework or what language you want to go through. Um, and yes, even I, I just mentioned the word language. It's sometimes people are like, yeah, we, we really like Python. We want to do stuff in Python, but again, Python might not be capable of doing what you want to do. So. Even, even like languages get decided sometimes during those initial meetings of setting up API design and uh, project architecture, system design architecture. So th that does happen. So it almost sounds like when you're, when you started transitioning from uh, the monolith to the microservices, you kind of built up um, an API governance board and really fleshed mm -hmm. out some of the base case of, um, of why someone should do GraphQL versus REST or language or things like that. And then you've kind of taken a step back, streamlined it, and then kind of empowered all the developers to kind of follow these guidelines, but also ultimately have fun and build whatever they need to build. Yep, you, you use the right, right word governance. Um, we, we, we want to provide the guardrails. Uh, I don't know if I, we, we call them guardrails, right? We give them uh, guardrails, again, taking the bike analogy, we don't want you to fall off the cliff. <laughs> we want you to be in those guardrails, but hey, like, uh, it, it, maybe give, we give you the alternatives to, like, be, somebody has done this, if you want to, like, pioneer that, if you want to trailblaze, like, something, some other framework or some other language, sure. Yep, 
So if you want to do some but, downhill freestyle, you can just ignore those rails <laughs> and go off the edge of that cliff. <laughs> yep. That's how, that's how you die. Are, sorry. No, I mean, um, I was just telling Phil, like, if you just freestyle it downhill, that's how you die, and that's how I make money, because we have a death pool for <laughs> how Phil will meet his eventual demise. Um, to what is the bring it back entry? to what, I no, don't remember. I'm going to, I'm going to keep it up. over here for a minute. <laughs> yeah. What's the latest guess for the death pool? Probably something with you um biking. I don't know. Let me see. I'll have to, I'll have to find it, but we have <laughs> a bigger good... topic at hand, which is APIs. And it's my job to keep us within the guardrails <laughs> in our governance board. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, so kind of like, you know, you streamline the governance process. And like, like you just said, you provide the developers um the guardrails so they don't fall off the cliff but they also still have, kind of have some some width to have some fun um mm -hmm. is this kind of like this is this is one of the things that kind of helped um the teams at wayfair kind of bring the development time of an api setup from two days to around 10 minutes i'm guessing right yep yep exactly and um, so was that, that was cookie cutter also like a big part of that as well or um is there another kind of like third area that kind of helped bring the time down to? Um, I would say that that's pretty much it. Uh, as far as like, I, uh, I know that my knowledge is like, uh, I don't have knowledge of every single component there, but that is basically what, what uh, there is. Um, one of the things there is with a cookie cutter template or templates like this, it, it'll build your API, but your, it's up to you to like configure all the error responses and uh, um, integrate that like the way your customers want. Like cookie cutter cannot generate the verbiage as you want it. Like, do you want it? I don't know, like version one beta, you want it. We, we kind of recommend using semantic versioning for most of our APIs. Um, not for most, for all of our APIs, that's the right word. Uh, we, we recommend using semantic versioning. That could be like, you know, Docker images or libraries or APIs, because semantic versioning works well uh, with, with what we are doing. Um, so cookie cutter will take you like, I would say, it'll set up a basic application for you, bring in all the Swagger stuff uh, or open API stuff or bring in all the GraphQL tooling. It'll take you only uh, so much uh, along the way. And then it is, it is up to you to add that additional layers of API specificity that are, that are applicable to you. Um, so it, it would magically generate like V1 slash ABC, which is specific to you because it does not know what V1 slash ABC, like it does not know what V1 is in the first place because it just generates it based on your inputs. Um, and then developers go in and add that extra documentations, description, um, they add, uh, what to say, like authentication, error handling. It, it, they just do all of that on their own. Um, again, we follow all the standards there. So RFC 78, Zero six, I think it's problem API uh, for problem APIs. We support, um, you know, OAuth and JWT-based authentication. Although we are moving to service mesh, so that might not be true yeah, <laughs> in the next nice. few months. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask about that. That's that's one of the ways I found that can really help standardization in a, in a kind of. Uh, ecosystem that has a lot of various different languages and frameworks and everything else. Um, when I was working at WeWork, something we were focusing on was, yeah, service mesh to try and make the 
the, the baseline of how timeouts and retries and, and circuit breakers might work, you know, because yeah. nobody, nobody implemented them anywhere. And then we started implementing them in the, like the rails stuff. And so like the rails mm. stuff started to get more stable, but then some of the Java stuff is falling over. Um, so it can be quite useful if you can use uh, API gateways and service meshes to kind of hoist some of that logic out of those different, um, yeah. uh, different code bases. You can kind of put it somewhere else that's a bit more standard. Have you been, doing much of that at Wayfair with the API gateways, maybe Kong or Apogee or whatever? Yep. Um, so we've done it. I'll take a specific example. Uh, maybe that's easier is we've, so with decoupled services, uh, a lot of them are front end facing. So they need to uh, serve data for React apps or iOS and Android apps. Um, so they, they generally tend to gravitate towards GraphQL because their use cases are so well-defined. When you have that, when you have like 20 microservices all with their own GraphQL schemas, that means there's 20 queries going, 20 requests going off uh, from the client side to fetch those. We found that to be, you know, counterintuitive to the whole microservices thing. We, uh, so um, here, what we did was we, used Apollo Federation. We are actively investing in Apollo Federation, which is sort of an API gateway, if you can, if you think about it in that terms, is it combines all the uh, GraphQL schemas into one centralized schema. And then that is how uh, the React or your native apps, they just write one single query and uh, they just uh, uh, push like a single query. And then the Federation figures out like how to route it to the internal services to fetch the data. Um, so that is one way we are, we are actually do, uh, like doing API gateways. And the second, second way is um, this concept of uh, larger teams. Um, if, if you, uh, I, I would highly recommend this article by Uber. They've written it recently, um, not that we've, we've referenced it, but it's called Domain Oriented Microservice Architecture, DOMA. Uh, we kind of are in that ballpark where we have a group of services that are performing the same purpose. So they kind of act as like one giant glob. And then there's like a bunch of tiny services in there. And then there's one gateway serving all of those services. So that acts as the ingress, uh, that's an overrated term, that adds like an in, in entry point into your other services. And uh, those are the two examples I would say that how we are tackling this. Um, and Apollo Federation is, we are already trialing it. Um, I, uh, man, it's, it is awesome. Like if, if you folks haven't checked out Federation, like uh, anyone listening to this podcast, do check it out. It, it is uh, for a, a service-oriented architecture and service-oriented way of building GraphQL. This, this I believe, uh, is like a like very good way to like uh, approach this, approach this multi-service architecture uh, using GraphQL. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, service meshes, of course, there that is still sitting on top of all of this uh, infrastructure too. Interesting. Um, and how, so you mentioned governance a little bit, and I think we've talked about it uh, a bit in previous episodes uh, too. I'm curious, you mentioned that Wayfair has like a bunch of API experts and when someone's about to kind of create an API, there's these domain experts and the, and the API mm -hmm. experts and maybe a few unicorns in the middle, but probably those groups <laughs> kind of, you know, come to meet and discuss how things should be done. That's interesting from like the creation uh, aspect, but do you have a team of like 
API experts that just float around looking for trouble? Or um, do you have like when there's a problem or an outage, uh, do they, are they like called in, do you know, get the Ghostbusters to come and have a look? Like who, who solves or looks for problems in the ecosystem? Because in my experience, a lot of the time, like one team will be saying, my API is totally fine. And the other team saying, my API is totally fine. And then there's a giant <laughs> problem with that. How the two talk that's happening, like yeah. performance issues, you know, down the down downstream. Um, do you have anyone anyone like that? Oh um, yeah, we we have like a bunch of folks. They're not like actually they're on pager duty or they're on on call is what what we call them, right? So th there are there are people, uh, API experts and uh, engineers like who can solve the problem. But here here's an interesting way of how we expose problems or how we actually understand performance issues in APIs and applications here. So. We are very big fans of open tracing and open census. I believe like open tracing and open census merge recently. So mm. we are big fans of like uh, open tracing and uh, we use Datadog as our primarily primary open tracing and uh, like anomaly detection uh, provider. Uh, that's, that's the infrastructure we use. So what we have is when, when you do like the cookie cutter generate, right? We automatically add uh, the necessary open tracing hooks to wrap your functions in uh, with open tracing helper methods. So when you deploy the application to you know, a developer development environment or production, you automatically get those traces logged uh, into Datadog. So what happens is when there's an issue, when there's like a services 500, like suddenly let's say somebody did not configure good rate limiting strategies. They were like, oh yeah, I, my single replica service can totally accept 5,000 requests per second. They totally, uh, mess that up. So what happens is Datadog will immediately detect that anomaly when there's a spike of traffic and will 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 notify you like uh, notify like all the people who are like on PG duty or something that hey this this service is surprisingly like uh, has like way too many timeouts way too many 500s do you folks want to go and take a look and and that's how like one of the topics that we didn't touch on is the ever changing like nature of APIs uh, at Bay, at Wayfair like. APIs change a lot. So one service uh, might be using a certain provider's API and that, that API might not be ideal for like they've already shown intent to move to version two. So this, this ever changing uh, API infrastructure is something we didn't discuss and like tools like Datadog Trace or Open Tracing, Datadog APM, they, they will not help you in that. What does help you is this handshaking protocol uh, that is becoming popular. I don't know if it, comes under API governance, but, but here's, here's an analogy, right? So you have a bunch of roommates um, and you have a drawer with all of your like fancy utensils and cookware. Uh, shout out to my teammate, Jonathan Jamorga. Uh, he came up with this analogy. Uh, I'm not sure where he picked this up from. So if there's original others, apologies, but the analogy is you have a can opener inside your drawer and then you go to like Ikea, you buy like more awesome utensils uh, or spoons and you want to put it in that drawer but then, hey, there's no more space for that can opener to be in that drawer. So you have to think of uh, another place for it. And you, you identify that, hey, that, that can opener has a magnet to it. Why not just attach it or put it on the fridge? So that is a breaking change, right? So if there was a third roommate who came in and rummaged through the drawers, like, hey, where's the can opener? Where's the can opener? They keep like looking around. Um, that that would, you would consider that a breaking change, right? Because somebody has taken a requirement, an agreement, broken a contract, and take that can opener and put it on the fridge. And then when the roommate comes back, he's like, yo, where's, where's my can opener? Where's the can opener? 
Uh, and the rest of the roommates are like, yeah, it's on the fridge. You, did you find it? I'm like, what? <laughs> so um, what, that, that, that is a real, real use case is um, certain subset of uh, developers think that there's a better way or better way to like move ahead with this, but you don't inform all of your consumers. So you don't inform all of your clients that, hey, we are going to change this API. So at Wayfair, we, we found this issue pretty early on. Um, like how do you show intent? Uh, semantic versioning and everything is good. Hey, awesome, you've gone to, gone to version V2, you have major breaking change, how do you communicate that? So what, what we came up with, uh, what we started using is this tool called Pact. Uh, it's uh, pact.io, it's an open source, I believe, tool to set up uh, these uh, consumer to provider handshakes that say like, we both agree on version one, will support this API and this, this behavior. It is, it is one step above integration testing because you know who your consumers are as a provider API and as a consumer, you know that the provider is going to um, abide by the contract and not break it. And uh, if, if, if let's say the provider for some reason pushes an API change that breaks a contract, it, the packed uh, ecosystem will not let, let it through production because you're going to break like so many consumers of your API. Um, and that is a contract. Again, this only applies to service uh, providers that have like maybe like at max like 20 to 25 because there's a, there's a mental, there's a limit that how many you can keep, how many contracts you can keep live. Let's say your service is used by thousand other services, different services, then it is not possible to maintain contracts with every single one of them. But most of the services at Wayfair, I would say like 99% of them, don't quote me on it, <laughs> are generally like services that are serve, that serve like maybe three to four API, uh, sorry, three to four consumers. So we use PAC to maintain that, uh, that sort of like, um, don't break your APIs and breaking changes are not, not appreciated by anyone, not just, <laughs> not just uh, developers. So pl please don't break the APIs. And uh, th that is something like uh, an additional tool that we've sort of integrated. We couldn't integrate this into cookie cutter, unfortunately, cause it is, it is an out of the process architecture sort of thing where you set up your API. And then if somebody comes and uh, comes to you and sets up a meeting and says, hey, I want to use your API let's set up a contract and then they shake hands on it and set up a contract. And that's how like it gets committed into like uh, our own like um, infrastructure. We self host the contract and Pact goes around testing it and enabling that, that uh, contracts. That, that was an awesome thing that we added and we found like value just immediately. That's interesting. Yeah. Pact, Pact comes up a lot and, and it, it seems, it seems pretty cool for, for dodging those problems. Like, uh, you know, somebody says, I'm going to give you A, B and C and then C vanishes and you're expecting C <laughs> to be there, then you're going to be pretty pissed off. But um, I, I'm having a really hard time. Having heat stroke makes, um, makes podcasts really hard. I've done this before where I just spend the entire day out in the sun and then try and talk about computers and can't do anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> what am I trying to say? Um, yeah. We can edit things, which is helpful. So with, with Pact, have you found a way to um, simplify the workflow? Because from my understanding of it, you have the consumer and the producer. Um, the producer may well have been doing their own contract testing, right? They, they know that their API meets the contract they've defined in OpenAPI or GraphQL or whatever, right? Like they, they've solved yep. that already. So then Pact is the consumer contract testing where 
the consumer yep. says, I would like A, B, and C, and if C suddenly vanishes, then my tests will shout at you. Um, so doing that, have you found a way to kind of automatically create um, those those packed contracts from the requests that the consumer are trying to make? Because one of my concerns with packed is, you know, you write a bunch of code that says, I'm expecting A, B, C, um, and, and you have, you then go into your packed consumer contract tests and say, I hope that A, B, and C are there, but then you change your code to say something else. You now expect D, um, and your packed test has not been updated. Like that, that seems like two sources of truth. Am I misunderstanding how it works, or are people just okay with having to update those two two sources of truth? Uh, so you're right. You're on the you're on the right right uh, path here. Is that um, there, there is a certainly at, as at the moment at Wayfair internally, we haven't found a way to like streamline this. So you have to go out of your way to like update the packed contract. But we have a project or we have like something that is being built by one of the teams at Wayfair to make this seamless. So what we are going to do, uh, so we use Belkite for most of our CICD stuff. Um, that, that is the way like you have a GitHub here, you push it. And I think it's pretty common across uh, many companies that they use like a CICD process using Belkite. And what we found that we can use Belkite to verify the packed contracts and somehow parse your open API uh, schema and figure out like, hey, do you want to add this to your packed contract? Do you want to enable this uh, addition? Uh, we are not there yet because it is it is tricky to solve across frameworks. So it's it's easy to solve, I would say, comparatively easy to solve with open API. But there's um, GraphQL, how, how do you know, like GraphQL, you have a schema and you want to add additional field, um, you have to be really, you have to go out of your way to reach out to the producer, hey, give me the latest schema and <laughs> come over here. And then on the on the consumer side, you have to verify that uh, it, it, it is kind of messy because dealing with like the main or master branches um, is, is really hard when you're in Belkite because you can run into sync, sync problems where things can get out of sync where provider is deploying something, so is the consumer. Um, and then they can, they can completely get, uh, it can get messy. So we are, we are trying to solve that right now. Again, this is not a use case that a lot of people generally have because um, uh, at Wayfair with CICD, are, we have like hundreds of, like hundreds of thousands of deploys going out every day. That not, might not be the use case. So if you have like a limited set of deploys, uh, you should use like your CI/CD pipeline to update your packed contracts. Um, again, this is all based on like uh, approval and verification from both entities. Uh, you can't just automatically enable it. Uh, so the people on the other side, the provider will be notified like, hey, this contract has been updated. They'll be, they'll be getting an email, automated email from the packed server that says uh, this consumer has added uh, D. Uh, they're already using ABC, they added D to their contract, uh, just informing you. <laughs> uh, when the provider changes, it's a much bigger deal because it has to be a higher priority email. Um, if they're doing a breaking change, that sharing that intent that, hey, we are deprecating these fields in version 1.5, for example. And then in version two, you're going to see like, it's going to be a breaking change and we're going to delete all the fields. Um, it, it is, it is uh, I think we are, we are working on it. It is not ready yet, but it, it'll take some time. But um, hopefully we can open source it. We'd, we'd love to open source uh, tooling there, um, but that, that's the plan as of now. <laughs> 
Yeah, I would like I would like to get access to that when you're done because yeah, I really want I want more uh, more consumer contract testing in my life, and other people want more of it in their life. But it, it just it it seems a bit of a faff at the moment, and anything that can be done to make it less of a faff sounds pretty excellent. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. So yeah, one last thing um, that you mentioned was that you you formed an internal API working group at uh, yep. Wayfair. Kind of like, do you all meet kind of like once a quarter, once a week? Is it, do you kind of review APIs that are already in production or is it kind of more towards like what is coming into the future uh, for APIs being built at Wayfair? Like kind of like what, how does that all kind of work um, with your day-to-day -day life as a developer who needs to, um, close issues, produce code, and you know, ultimately help the company make money? Uh, awesome question. So we uh, API working groups are Wayfair's way of like really targeted initiatives. So we see a problem, we identify a problem, like a bunch of developers, engineers, whoever identifies a problem, and we just form like a tightly knit group who meets you know, weekly, bi-weekly, something like that and then just targets and figures out solutions to that. So API working group was one, uh, one of those initiatives at Wayfair where um, it started off with uh, contract testing and API governance. Like how do we do that at Wayfair? Uh, we are pretty new to uh, like governance of APIs. How do we standardize that? And it started off from there. It's we meet uh, every week um, and it, it is an ongoing process. So things like Pact, things like open API, um, we were also like, looked at Spectro uh, for linting um, and like API verification. Um, all of these like tooling and support and uh, what, are, what are our next steps. Um, so there's a, a diverse set of teams. I think there's around eight to nine teams in that API working group, like members from those teams that attend those meetings. And if a team is like really passionate about that, they'll bring it up, bring it up to the API working group. Like, hey, we want to really solve this. Can you, do you folks have bandwidth? So if uh, teams have bandwidth there. We just like la be laser focused on that for like, you know, how long it takes to get that out. And we just roll it out. So Pact was one. We are already like uh, rolling it out. Pact was uh, Open API was another one, Open API 3 specifically. Um, and uh, like a design review. So the concept of domain experts, design, re design review process and all of that, like they all like uh, were things that were brought up service mesh i think was uh, brought up in there too but i believe like it was more of like infrastructure thing um so these things do like bubble up to there and people know like there's an api working group because we are very active on slack and it's like hey reach out here if you have any api questions reach out here so um that, that's how it started and that's how it like keeps keeps growing keeps providing value um and and like a lot of like tech leadership attends those meetings like which which is awesome like we need the more buy-in the, these groups get, uh, the more like uh, value we can provide. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, I like how like you've, at Wayfair, you've created a culture where like you've created the, guard, the guardrails so developers don't just yep. end up in a lake or somewhere else. But at the same time, you give them enough of the, the space to have fun and also kind of challenge themselves to build really awesome things. Um, you said at the beginning, you're not really on Twitter. Do you blog anywhere? Can like people find you online or like in a, a open source Slack communities if they have questions they want to kind of get your thoughts uh, on? I, I would I would recommend like reaching out to me on Twitter. I'm a, I'm my Twitter handle is stymied underscore sloth. It's in snake case. Um, my GitHub is stymied sloth Pascal case, both S is capital. 
Um, don't ask me how I came up with that name. It's something I thought it was cool like a few years back. Now it's very cheesy, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> At least um, you were creative. I'm just Phil Sturgeon everywhere. It's really boring. Yeah. I need to change it to Crashy McSider face <laughs> or something. <laughs> and then people get confused because they're like, who's Crashy McSider face? I'm like, that's Phil. Uh -oh. Um, nice. Yeah, Wayfair has a GitHub too. So it's github.com slash Wayfair. We have a lot of open source projects. Um, we are actively contributing and thinking. So one of the things that we are going to open source soon is this uh, tool called Columbo, which is an addition on top of like the cookie cutter templates where you can ask like dynamic questions, like things like, do you want to add GraphQL? Do you want to add, you know, NumPy? Do you want to add Pandas? You know, whatever. Um, like that dynamic structure, uh, I believe it's going to be open source sometime soon. We are working on it. So there's a bunch of cool stuff in there. There's Wayfair tech blog. Um, I actively contribute to the Wayfair tech blog. I don't actually have a blog of my own. I need to start that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's you, you can reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm very active there, tweeting out a bunch of funny things. So yeah. <laughs> nice, awesome, cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to um hang out with us for an hour or so. It was, it was great talking to you. Um, hopefully someone learned something. I learned a lot of cool things about Pact and all that cool stuff. So um, cool. Awesome. Thanks, Seth. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That was awesome. Later.